0: You're listening to Theology and Apologetics with Thomas Fretwell, bringing theology to life. We are in Psalm 57, continuing our journey through the book of Psalms. It's been a very enjoyable experience, but we are going to be in Psalms for quite a while longer. But let's get into Psalm 57 tonight. Dear Father, I just thank you, Lord, for the book of Psalms. I thank you for your word. Pray now that you'll give us eyes to see, ears to hear, and hearts to understand what your spirit is saying to the church. In Jesus' name. Amen. So we've seen Psalm 52, Psalm 54, and also in Psalm 56. This is dealing with the general period of Saul's life where he is flee uh well, David's life, sorry, where he is fleeing from Saul. It's sort of the, the wilderness escapades, if we could call them. And then you will notice at the top of Psalm 57. It says that this psalm is talking about when it takes place when he is in a cave hiding from Saul. We know from our survey through the book of 1 and 2 Samuel that there is only a couple of places where he is hiding in a cave. 1 Samuel 22, he speaks of the cave of Adullam, and 1 Samuel 24, the cave near Engedi. The narrative fits better with the first one, but it will most likely be one of these two caves, which is the setting for Psalm 57. Now, the earlier Psalms that we see in David's life when he's on the run here, you get a sense of desperation in the words that he writes. And I would say in this Psalm, although the circumstances still seem very bleak, he sounds much more settled in his tone. And I find that to be quite fascinating as you go through the Psalms like this, because his circumstances have not changed. If anything, they're just as bad as they always were. He's hiding for his life in a cave. But something within him has changed changed to give him that steadfastness and it really relates to just taking refuge in God. He has taken refuge in God. God is mentioned by name or pronoun 21 times in this short psalm and for me this gives us an immediate clue of one of the things that we need to get through tough times in our lives. Simply we need an abundance of God. Let's read the first verse says, be gracious to me, O God, be gracious to me. For my soul takes refuge in you, and in the shadow of your wings I will take refuge, until destruction passes by. I will cry to God Most High, to God who accomplishes all things for me. He will send from heaven and save me. He reproaches him who tramples upon me, Selah. God will send forth his love and kindness and his truth. So we notice here again, as David so often does in the Psalms, he begins with a petition, with a prayer, basically. It's been said that prayer is the last refuge of a scoundrel, and it should also be the first refuge of a saint in that respect. Now, I've heard that. You may have heard that expression, the last refuge of a scoundrel. I've heard it so many times, I thought I would try and track down the source of it. No word of a lie, the only person I can find to which that quote is attributed is Lisa Simpson from one of the very early episodes of The Simpsons. And most people assume she was making a play on the, the, the expression that actually reads that patriotism is the last refuge of a scoundrel. So I couldn't find the real quote, but there it is. You get my point. So it says, be gracious, be gracious to me. Now notice, He says this twice, we're going to see this a lot in the psalm actually, he repeats this twice, obviously the the psalms do that, it's a poetic way of emphasising a point, we see Jesus do that actually in some of his teaching too in many ways, but he says, my soul takes refuge in you. Now remember the setting, he's on the run, fearful for his life, he's hiding at this moment in a dark cave in the wilderness, away from his family, away from the palace, away from all these sorts of things. And sometimes... When everything is stripped away, it's then that we really place our trust in God. Only when we realize that we've been placing our trust in other things can we fully and wholeheartedly commit ourselves to God. Yes, we may often say we trust in God and and really mean it, I'm not denying that. But in reality, it's very easy, particularly in our culture and our world, to divide that trust across a number of different things. Yes, we trust in God, we trust in prayer, but we also trust that quite often it will be our job or our bank account or these other things that come into our lives that we also put quite a lot of faith in, in many ways. Now, of course, I'm not saying there's anything wrong with that if it's a warranted faith, but it's not on the same level as what we do with God. Just understand my point there. David has everything taken away from him here. You see, he's, it's all stripped away. Everything is just stripped back and he's alone in a dark cave. He knew that it was in God and God alone that he could trust. Be gracious to me, O oh God, be gracious to me. My soul takes refuge in you. And then it says, in the shadow of your wings, I will take refuge. And this is a beautiful picture. At the shadow of your wings. If you've ever seen a picture of, of a bird on the nest with little hatchlings in the nest, and the way the arm just covers all of them. It's like a very vivid picture of protection and comfort and the love of a parent in that respect. And we actually see this a lot through the Bible, the way when God compares, uh, uses this imagery to speak of himself. In the book of Ruth, you find this. Uh, It's not just in the Psalms. The book of Ruth, remember when Boaz is speaking, he says, may the Lord reward your work, speaking to Ruth, and your wages be full from the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to seek refuge. You could see, I'd imagine he was a man that read the Psalms and he knew this imagery. Psalm 63, verse 7, for you have been my help, and in the shadow of your wings, I sing for joy. And of course, for me, one of the most famous uses of this imagery is from Matthew 23, from the, the words uh, of Jesus. You remember, he comes up to the hill, he looks over Jerusalem, and he says, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. See that double, uh, repetitive uh, statement for emphasis. Who kills the prophets stones those who are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children, the way a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, and you were unwilling. And I find it very interesting that this familiar theme of God in the Old Testament, Jesus now personalizes it, and he says, I'm the one who wanted to gather you under, you, under my wings, under her wings, speaking of the city of Jerusalem, the nation of Israel, who have rejected him at this point. But then it says, he cries to God, verse two, I will cry to God most high. As I was reading this, it really got me thinking, how often do we actually cry out to God do we have such an urgent need in our life that it's all consuming that we cry out to God and again this may be something to do with our culture but the wording here seems to just carry that intense passion that we see from a man who is in desperation or from a man who has had everything stripped away it's probably related to the first thing a man whose trust is not divided amongst other things but a man whose trust is solely in the Lord can cry out with this sort of passion quite often we have the attitude that if something you know we mentioned it in prayer a couple of times and we left it there and life has moved on very quickly we forget about those things I think what we're seeing here is a man who is crying out and we need to cry out to God like that you've all got things in your life that you want God to deal with areas God wants to work in your life situations that you may need God's help with to overcome and notice who he cries out to, I will cry out to God most high. This is a, again a wonderful phrase for God. It reminds us of his position as the highest, as the ruler, the sovereign of the universe. And it such a wonderful contrast. If you think about who he is addressing his prayer to, the God most high, the ultimate, the supreme, that no one can be any higher, highest of the high. And yet David is probably at the lowest point right now. He's in a cave, hidden away, in the pitch black, in the dark. And he's crying out to the Most High. You see, it doesn't really matter where he is. He knows that the one he can speak to, he can commune with, is the King of the Universe, the Most High. We need to have that in our, in our hearts and our minds, particularly as we are in a time now where we are. We have been isolated for quite a long period of time. I know a lot of people are struggling with that. We have our own issues that are being exasperated by the whole situation that stress us out, we need to look up to the heavens. And I believe this, this beautiful passage from Isaiah, let me read it to you. Isaiah 40, verse 26, he says, lift your eyes on high, lift your eyes up to the heavens, basically, and see who has created these stars, the one who leads forth their host by number. He calls them all by name. Because of the greatness of his might, the strength of his power, none of them is missing. He's saying you need to look up, you need to forget about what is around you in the world, stop focusing on it. I'm not saying be detached, living like a monk, but I'm saying in the midst of that, make sure that your eyes are looking up to the heavens because the God most high is the one who is in control of these things and you have a relationship with him, so you need not fear. And we have that too. What does it say in Hebrews? Let us fix our eyes on Jesus. We we look upon Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. He is the one who has done it all. And the more we focus on him, the less we'll be troubled by the world. And notice what David says. He says, I cry out to the God most high who accomplishes all these things for me. This is what I've just been saying. He actually petitions God based on God's own character, based on God's faithfulness. You could read this as the one who fulfills his purpose for me. You see God's faithful covenant loyalty, his, his loving kindness, as it says in the Old Testament so often, his purpose will be accomplished, quite often regardless of whether we mess up or whether the choices we make and I think this is a good reminder for us. Sometimes we need to stop thinking that everything depends on us, that we're going to be the ones to, responsible for someone else's spiritual walk, responsible for all these different pressures that we put on ourselves and I'm not saying we just sit idly and wait for anything, nothing to happen, But I'm saying we have to trust and rely on God that he is the one who will accomplish these things. He is the one who has begun a good work, and he is the one that will bring it to completion. I'm sure when David was sitting in this cave, or actually when he was anointed as king, do you remember back by the prophet Samuel, those first days, I very much doubt that he thought in his own desires, in the own way that that this was going to play out, that a little while later he'd be hiding in a cave, fearing for his life as the anointed king. You see, God often uses situations that we don't know, we don't plan for. And in this situation, we cry out to the God Most High, the one who put the stars in the heaven and knows them by name. And notice it says, Silah. And it's a very, the Silah, we, we see this throughout the Psalms. It's that pause, reflection moment. But it's, it's in a very unusual place here. And I, like, it just made me think about why. Because usually you will see that at the end of a verse. But notice... It's slap bang in the middle of a, a verse here, in the middle. It says, he will he reproaches him who tramples upon me, Selah, God will send forth his loving kindness. So it wants you to have that pause, reflective moment, one verse before the end. And remember, this is, this is the holy word of God. There's nothing in here that's not there by deliberate design. There is a purpose that the Holy Spirit had for putting it there. He wants us to reflect at this point that God will deal with his enemies. And we don't often like to speak in that way because we obviously have the words of Jesus on our heart, but we need to make sure that we have a theology that can incorporate the whole of Holy Scripture. God will deal with his enemies. What it's saying is, you focus on the loving kindness of the Lord. So it says after that, God will send forth his truth. God will save you, God will take you out of the cave, raise you up from the pit. This theme that we see over and over in the Psalms, he will send forth his loving kindness and his truth. And I believe the ultimate fulfillment that we saw in that is when the grace of God appeared to all men. He sent forth his loving kindness and his truth, ultimately in the incarnate person, the descendant of David, the greater David, the king of Israel, Jesus. Let's look at verse four. My soul is among lions, I must lie among those who breathe forth fire, even the sons of men whose teeth are spears and arrows and their tongue a sharp sword. Be exalted above the heavens, O God. Let your glory be above all the earth. They have prepared a net for my steps. My soul is bowed down. They dug a pit before me. They themselves have fallen into the midst of it. Selah. He says, my soul is among lions. Now this is, a, again, he's using the imagery of the sort of the wildlife that he has around him. Now remember, we don't, you don't have lions in Israel today, but they did actually have lions in Israel back then. And I believe it was only after, I think it was the 1960s, that the last lion was considered to be sort of extinct in that land area. But you did have lions in Israel. But I, I like the imagery here. He's a man amongst lions. You can feel, you see the imagery there. You can feel everything going on. His soul is bowed down. They dug a pit for me. It's, he's describing a situation that is not good. <laughs> you know, it's, it's fearful and it's scary. But if we were to make an application to our own lives, and this will be personal to your own lives, but you can all probably come up with a situation where you maybe are the only believer. And you feel a little bit like you're surrounded by lions. A situation where you're constantly vexed upset or exhausted, troubled, ridiculed, you're being put to the test, you're being tried by fire, simply by the people in the situations that you have to live your life in, that you work in, that your home is like, uh, that you put yourselves in by mistake sometimes, and sometimes just things that come across our paths and we have absolutely uh, no choice or not. We get that a lot and many of us, you know, we know our church friends but in our work lives, we don't know any Christians. That's that's pretty common in this world, you know, in the UK right now. Many people are the only believer in their household, and they have a, a family who is maybe hostile to the faith. And in many parts of the church around the world, it'll cost you your job, your livelihood, and all these things to confess the name of Christ, surrounded by lions. That is, what, you know, I, I appreciate David, David's thought there. It's hard when you're in those situations not to get corrupted by those lions as they continually press in on you. You, again, you need to learn the lesson of David here. He knew those feelings very well. He understood them. And what does he do? It's that same thing. Be gracious to me, O God. He cries out to the God Most High. And then what does it say? It says, be exalted above the heavens, O God, and let your glory be above all the earth. And this is really the chorus of this psalm here, because it's repeated again, exactly the same right at the end. Um, Be exalted above the heavens. It tells us that we need to meditate on the exaltation of God, his place in the heavens. It ties in with that theme of God most high. We serve the most high in heaven. He will deliver us. You see, we need to remember that although we may be surrounded by lions in many of the situations that we have in life, ultimately we have a greater lion in our corner because we have the lion of the tribe of Judah. You remember that from Revelation 5.5? It says, stop weeping. Behold, the lion that is from the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has overcome so as to open the book and the seven seals. The lion of the tribe of Judah. It always makes me think the imagery of Aslan. You remember C.S. Lewis's uh, Narnia Chronicles? He has this figure of Aslan, this great lion, who who is a prophetic Type of Jesus Christ throughout these novels there's one very famous part where it says this it says wrong will be right when Aslan comes in sight at the sound of his roar sorrows will be no more when he bears his teeth winter meets its death and when he shakes his mane we shall have spring again It's just a very lovely, in Lewis's poetic way that he does, of describing what happens when Christ comes into someone's life or when Christ actually comes as that conquering lion to take his kingdom and set up his kingdom in a physical way on this earth. It was the anniversary of of Lewis's death on Sunday, so I had to throw in a Lewis quote, an Narnia quote there. Sorry about that, but it's a great quote. It says, They have prepared a net for my steps, Basically, this is, you know, they've tried to trap me. If you think of in the wilderness and you're trying to trap an animal, he's picturing himself as an animal being hunted now by lions and they they prepared a trap. And this tells us something about the schemes of the enemy. You know, make no mistake about it. The enemy is trying to trip us up. He's trying to get us to fall into that pit. And often he will use deception or any other means that he can to get us into that pit. But what I love about this verse, it says, my soul is bowed down, they dug a pit before me. And then it says, this is the twist to the story, they themselves have fallen into the midst of it. And then it gives us another selah, which means think about this. Because ultimately, they are their own destruction. They they could not fool the God Most High. They cannot outsmart his plan. The Lord looks down. Remember we saw in verse 2, the Lord looks down from the heavens and laughs as the nations plot a vain thing against him. It's a, basically, we would say they ended up digging their own grave. Their own wickedness, their own plans to destroy, is why they ended up in that grave. It reminds me of the story of Esther. Remember that wonderful book in the Old Testament? And you have that character, Haman, and Mordecai the faithful Jew and he, he wants to get Mordecai in trouble and he builds this gallows and he's planning on tricking the king and getting this man hanged and it ends up that he ends up that he is the one who is hung on his own gallows it's very similar to the thought i see here that yeah, it's a great great book let's read where are we verse 7 it says for my heart is steadfast o oh god my heart is steadfast i will sing yes i will sing praises awake my glory Awake, harp and lyre, I will awaken the dawn. I will give thanks to you, O Lord, among the peoples. I will sing praises to you among the nations, for your loving kindness is great to the heavens, and your truth to the clouds. Be exalted above the heavens, O God. Let your glory be above all the earth. So that, and that's the end of the psalm. There, so it's not a long psalm. It's only eleven verses, and we're actually Psalm 58, only eleven verses. So. We won't be too long tonight, but notice again these double affirmations that pile up here. Just like at the beginning, be merciful, or, be gracious to me, be gracious to me. He says, my heart is steadfast, my heart is steadfast. Then he says, I will sing praises, I will sing praises. And then he says, awake, my glory, and awake, harp and lyre. So three, three couplets here of this, of this repetition to really emphasize these points that he's making. So what does it mean? My heart is steadfast. Some of your translations may read fixed there. And I like that. Your heart is fixed. And this is really speaking to me, the blessings of assurance. Knowing that even in circumstances, even in that cave, even in that wilderness, surrounded by those lions, he can sing praises to the Lord because his heart is steadfast. His heart is anchored to the one who is steadfast. The rock. Without the rock this would not be possible. It's a very similar sentiment that what Paul expresses to Timothy. You remember in Second Timothy one two, he says, I suffer all these things, but I'm not ashamed, for I know in whom I have believed, and that he is and I am convinced he is able to guard what I have entrusted to him until that day. I know in whom I have believed. And we need to remember this in those times when things, those lions are just pressing in on us, when our hearts are becoming dull and weary. We know in whom we have believed. It is the Lord God Most High, the Lion of the tribe of Judah. And our hearts can be steadfast knowing that. We need to make our refuge in Christ. We need our hearts to be steadfast too, just like David's was here. And we find this again in the New Testament, Second Thessalonians 3.5. The Apostle Paul actually prays this. It's a great prayer to pray if you know someone who's struggling or you're struggling yourself. He says, May the Lord direct your hearts into the love of God. Notice, the love of God and the steadfastness of God are linked here. May the Lord direct your hearts into the love of God and into the steadfastness of Christ. 2 Thessalonians 3 verse 5, that is. And I like the way he connects his prayer, his petition for the saints that they need to be directed to the right destination, and that is purely into the love of God. And that will be where they find the steadfastness of Christ, because he is the ultimate manifestation of that. And then they can cry out like David, our hearts are steadfast. And Paul, just as Paul said, I've suffered all these things, but my heart is steadfast in Christ. Because of this, he will sing. Notice it says, I will sing, yes, I will sing, Praises, singing praises is good for the soul, and I think this has been one of the things that's been so hard about this whole year, basically this lockdown period. We haven't been able to worship in the manner that we previously would, and I don't know about you, but you notice that in your spiritual life, there's a power, there's a there's a, a calming effect, there's a spiritual effect that happens as you commune with God, as you sing praises. It's an expression of our heart's desire, and we need to be doing this now. We can do this in, we don't have to do this at church, we can do this in our own lives individually too. You don't even have to sing, you can just have a song in your heart, so to speak. One of my favourite devotions is, as I've said many times, I just read an old Methodist hymn book. I have a couple of old Methodist hymn books. It usually only takes me two or three hymns in, and my spirits are just lifted and my soul is soaring again. But just because of the words that are so rich, they are truly psalms, hymns and spiritual songs written about scripture, they're theologically rich, they're just poetically brilliant, and they lift up the Lord Jesus Christ. And when you focus on him, you understand, and you are, your heart is made steadfast when you feel it beginning to wander. He says, I will awaken the dawn. So notice, he says, awake, my glory, awake, harp and lyre, I will awaken the dawn. And again, this is just a beautiful picture that David gives us here. What he's basically saying is, he will be the first one up to praise God. Throughout the Psalms, it says that he meets God in the morning. We often find that a theme, make it, you know, you meet God early in the morning. But he's saying, I will awaken the dawn. And the picture is in the Judean wilderness that as that sun rises, it will arise to the sound of him singing praises to God. And that is how the rest of the nation will be, the dawn, that is how the dawn will arrive, to a chorus of praise. And I, just, I love that picture. And then after that, he says, I will give thanks to you, O Lord, among the people so notice there is a missional effect of praise we looked at this a few weeks back didn't we it has an impact among the peoples when you see someone worshipping God it's quite awe-inspiring when their hearts are abandoned and they're just worshipping it's pure and it's innocent and it's very very powerful and he will give thanks among the peoples David's role as king was to lead the nation our role as the church as kings and priests is to really be a light to the world. Part of that is telling and singing of what God has done for us. us. It says, I will sing praises to you among the nations. That means that we are to be among the nations. That is, often we are in the place where the lions are. We are in the place where those people who are lost and seeking God are. And we need to have praise on our lips and on our lives. It says, your loving kindness is great to the heavens. And then he ends with that chorus again. Be exalted above the heavens, O God. Let your glory be above all. The and that is just a wonderful picture that we have there. Ends with the chorus for God to be exalted. And ultimately, as Christians, we know that this is the ultimate and final desire of every believer. We want God to get the glory. And ultimately, this picture is a time when one day the glory of the Lord will cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. And that will be wonderful. Let's go straight into Psalm 58. Again, this is only a short psalm. So it says, "Do you indeed?" uh, Let's read the the top bit. It says, "For the choir director, set to Al Tasheth, a miktam of David." Some of your translations there may say "set to uh, your destruction" or something like that. We don't know quite what that was. Was it a tune? We're just not really too sure, to be honest. But it's the same sort of period. So he says, do you indeed speak righteousness, O gods? Now, actually, before we get into this psalm, let me just share with you a little bit of history about this psalm. This is a tough psalm. It's about a God who judges. Now, we often don't like to think of that because we are such privileged people as born-again believers that all judgment has been committed under the sun, that we will not be judged for our sins because we've accepted what Christ did for us when he was judged for our sins. So it's quite often quite far from our mind, except if you're, if you're preaching the gospel to, to the unsaved. But psalms like this are quite hard to deal with, well, or at least they have been historically in the church. I'm hoping that I can make it a little bit easier for you today. This psalm was, was actually so disliked in many circles that in the, the 1962 and the 1980 a service book in the Anglican church, they actually completely removed this psalm they didn't know how to have it in, for their public liturgy. So it goes straight from far, Psalm 57 to Psalm 59. If you, in the liturgy, they read certain portions of the, of the scripture in their public services. Now, the reason why is because it deals with a God who judges, and it features quite violent imagery in the psalm. And there's a few lessons that we can learn from this before we actually get into it. Now, of course, we use common sense in how we share and discuss Portions of the Bible with different ages in our audience and these sorts of things. I'm not really even addressing that. That's just common sense as far as I'm concerned. But if we take it further than that, there does seem to be a danger here in setting an example of simply doing away with parts of Scripture that we don't like or that we don't know how to deal with. It's one thing to say I don't understand that. In fact, that's absolutely fine to to wrestle with the text in that manner. But to actually remove texts is getting into very, very dangerous territory. You remember the warnings. You do not add or subtract. You do not take away from the word of God. Because what it actually says, we do this all the time in our culture. Those portions of scripture that are not culturally acceptable anymore, quite often people will suddenly have a different viewpoint on them. This is how it happens. What is happening here is ultimately you are saying to God, you were wrong about that. And with all my wisdom, I am now understanding that in a way that is much more acceptable to this culture and times. And ultimately, that's just a terrible way to do biblical exegesis. Aside from being actually quite blasphemous, God knows. God inspired this word. We need to accept it, even if it's hard. And it is hard. I mean, of course it's hard. This is a, a message from a, to a fallen, uh, sinful world from a holy God. Of course there are going to be parts like that. But the heart of the saint is that we love the word of God. We treasure it in our hearts. We walk it out in our lives. We seek it. We eat it. We meditate on it. This is the word of God in our lives. So let's jump in. To, let's read the first few verses. Do you indeed speak righteousness, O gods? Do you judge uprightly, O sons of men? No. In heart you work unrighteous. In your heart you work unrighteousness. On earth you weigh out the violence of your hands. The wicked are estranged from the womb. Those who speak lies go astray from birth. They have venom like the venom of a serpent, like the deaf cobra that stops up its ear so that it does not hear the violence of charmers or cast, or a skillful caster of spells. Now, this psalm seems to be aimed at corrupt rulers. You can sort of get that. Do you indeed speak righteousness? And my, my translation actually says, O gods, Uh, Some of your translations will say, O rulers or O silent ones. The idea that's being expressed here is that there are people, rulers, who are being silent in the face of injustice. They are not only being silent, they're even probably cooperating in these things. It seems to be that that's who this psalm is aimed at. Those who see corruption, those who go along with it, and those who support it. Now, we can see in just looking at history, a cursory look at history, there are many examples of this. We know the old expression, you know, power corrupts. Uh, Fallen man is often corrupted by power. Fallen man is often silent when his fellow man is suffering. This just goes on all the time, and this is a fallen world. Isaac Watts wrote to him, on this psalm, Uh, it's actually a hymn on Psalm 58, and he addressed this to the British government. He was writing this psalm. It was at the time when it was the the act of toleration, which was 1689 sort of period. It was about giving freedoms and not... Restricting the liberties of non-Anglicans, so the nonconformist believers of which were starting to grow, and he was considering the British government to be the wicked rulers at that time. And he addressed it like this. Let me read to you a couple of verses. It's, it's interesting to see how he used this psalm historically. He says, "Judges who rule the world by laws, will ye despise the righteous cause when the injured poor before you stands?" Dare ye condemn the righteous poor and let rich sinners scape secure, while gold and greatness bribe your hands? Have ye forgot or never knew that God will judge the judges too? High in the heavens his justice reigns, yet you invade the rights of God and send your bold decrees abroad to bind the conscience in your chains. You can see the themes there that he's taking from the psalm, uh, the silent judges, that ultimately God is going to be the judge, who will judge the judges. So don't think you're getting away with this. Then it says, do you judge uprightly, O sons of men? And it doesn't. Basically the answer is no. You don't judge uprightly. He accused them of being unrighteous. He says, you work unrighteousness in your heart and you weigh out violence from your hands. You're estranged from the room. Everything you speak goes astray. You have venom like the venom of a serpent. Ultimately, it's a, it's a fairly damning passage. We see here the the ongoing character of what is referred to as the wicked man or the depraved man. One, he's unrighteous in his judgment. Two, he's wrong in his heart. Three, he's violent in his treatment of his fellow humans. He apostatizes early in life. He has a falsity in his life. He's malignant in his spirit, and he's deceitful in his heart. These are all the things that David's saying of the wicked. Verse six, he says, "'O God, shatter their teeth in their mouth,' Break out the fangs of the young lions, O Lord. Let them flow away like water that runs off. When he aims his arrows, let them be as headless shafts. Let them be as a snail which melts away as it goes along. Let like the miscarriages of a woman which never see the sun. Before your pots can feel the fire of thorns, he will sweep them away with a whirlwind, the green and the burning alike. Now these are the verses that cause all the controversy with this psalm, particularly verse six there, it says, "'Oh God, shatter their teeth in their mouth.'" This is why it was removed from the, the Anglican books. Now, on the one hand, I immediately do not want to take away from the seriousness of what this psalm is actually implying, that there will be a day when wickedness is destroyed and it will be a day that is fearful, a day when justice will be administered by one who is completely holy and without sin, It will be a day when despicable sins that men have done in secret will be brought out into the open, that every evil intention of man's heart will be exposed, every evil deed done in darkness will be brought into the light and justice will be served. That is a fearful day. God is a judge in that sense. But I do want to correct some uh, misconceptions that are often pushed about this portion of the psalm. Firstly, we have to understand, it is actually a psalm. The psalms use poetic language highly emotive statements to evoke that feeling in us. That's good poetry when you can get those sorts of feelings. That is, remember this is Psalms, it's, it's poetic literature. Thoughts are often expressed in those heavily dramatic ways to illustrate points. Secondly, this is written you know, in the ancient Near Eastern cultures, not in 21st century Britain. <laughs> that was a brutal period of history. They were not quite as easily offended or shocked as we were. Uh, for most of us, I think part of the problem is we just do not really understand the call for justice in this sense. You see, we live in a period, in a nation of history. Sorry, there's some banging going on there that's distracting me. I'm guessing that's fireworks. But there will be a day when wickedness is destroyed. And this is the truth of what this psalm is getting at. We do not maybe understand what it's like to be on the receiving end of the wicked man in this respect. We live in a nation where we have human rights. We live in a nation where we have functioning democracies, where we have law and we have order. We have militaries to protect us. We have reforms. We have charities. We have good medicine, good hospitals, all of these things. We don't expect our children to die in childbirth. We don't expect to be kidnapped from the neighboring village. We don't expect an army to come and to the city at any moment. These are realities that the ancient world had. We don't really have that, so maybe we don't appreciate the cry for justice in that same way. But if you have ever heard someone, even in the current day, speak on this, who has been on the receiving end of gross evil, or gross injustice, or just pure wickedness, they understand this call for justice. If you read contemporary stories, of what people have suffered at the hands of the wicked, or if you just go through history and read some of those events of things that were commonplace, you'll understand this cry for justice because they weren't going to get justice in the temporal. So the God was one of the reasons that they would look. For those who have done these things, no one gets, gets away with it. I believe that mindset maybe gives us a little more of a glimpse of some of the reasons why we have these things in the Psalms. But let's deal with that very unique point that people make accusations over, where it says in verse 6, break their teeth or shatter their teeth in their mouth, O God. Break out the fangs, shatter their teeth in their mouth. Now, the way that this is often caricatured, I've seen this with many skeptics and with many uh, Christians not knowing quite how to respond to this. They are literally picturing that God is telling you, David is praying that God would kind of grab their head and just smash their face against a rock and smash out all their teeth. And that's how this is presented. We need to be more careful than that. Remember, this is poetic language. He's using very strong imagery. Let me go through with this, show you what is actually happening. We need to follow the imagery. So in verses 4 to 5 that we've already read, he likens these wicked people to animals. He actually uses the example of a cobra whose venom, whose poison is in its massive fangs. And then he carries on, and then he says this verse that we're reading, "Oh God, shatter their teeth in their mouth. But then you have to read the second part of the verse. To understand this, you can't just take that verse out of context and apply it and say, oh, look, this is horrible. He then says, break out the fangs of the young lions, O Lord. To understand what he's doing here, he's using the imagery of lions to describe them and of cobras. Now, one thing about lions and about cobras is they both have these massive fangs that is where their power and where their strength come from so what David is actually praying here oh god shatter their teeth in the mouth he's talking about the lions and the cobras and those things about the teeth is representative of those animals power he is basically saying remove the power from the from the from the wicked ones stop them take away that poison so they cannot hurt us and in when you understand it in that context it's the most reasonable prayer you know, this, this whole imagery, this caricature of it is just not accurate. This is what is going on here. David is asking that he would take away their power, remove the sting of their bite. It's poetic, and yes, it is very powerful imagery, but it's not quite as simplistic as that caricature um, would suggest. And then he goes through all these other descriptions, or again, very similar sentiments to the fact of removing the wicked. Make them be like water that run off. If he aims his arrow with no, with no feathers on the end, it would just go. Uh, all these sorts of things. And then there's that very, the thought of the line that a lot of people, again, are offended by. It's like the miscarriages of a woman which never see the sun. Again, the thought of that line is that he is basically saying, Let them be, wouldn't it be better if they were never born? Wouldn't it be better, better if the wicked were never born? It's, it's, a, it's a phrase, and you can, I hope you can understand the sentiment that's being expressed there. We actually see very similar sentiments to this about the wicked in the New Testament. You remember in Mark 14, It says, for the son of man is to go just as it is written, but woe to that man by whom the son of man is betrayed. It would have been good for that man if he had not been born. That's the same sentiment. And we we see other uh, verses that are similar. Remember, it would be better for him, Luke 17, this is a man who harms a child in that sense or causes him to stumble. It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea than that he would cause one of these little ones to stumble. So we do get this righteous cry when the wicked are doing wicked things. And we should expect that because justice is actually something that we we do understand. Our legal systems are based on the principle of justice and rewarding the good and punishing the evil, restraining the evil. So this is just more of a cosmic, we're seeing this play out on a cosmic scale. Let's read just the final couple of verses. It says, Then the righteous will rejoice. When he sees the vengeance, he will wash his feet in the blood of the wicked, and men will say, "Surely there is a reward for the righteous. Surely there is a God who judges the on earth." And again, this is another verse that, that people have picked up on, and they're not quite sure how to deal with it. This this point of washing your feet in the blood of the wicked. And again, people have this picture of gleeful believers just laughing at the death of the wicked. Again, you have to understand Scripture in the the totality. We know that God has no pleasure in the death of the wicked. All of these things are a grievous revolt, revolt of Satan and sin in the world. But evil people do do wicked things. But understand what the language here. This is what we would call warfare language. The picture is of two opposing armies: the righteous and the wicked. And if you think about ancient Near Eastern battle scenarios, you would have a battlefield. You would have a place of land, usually where the battle took place. No planes and all these sorts of things. The army that is victorious at the end would walk back across the battlefield to get back to to the heads of their army. And as they were doing that, their feet would become drenched in blood. This is what the expression washed in the feet of blood means. It's it's basically, again, it's another strong uh, expression that they would have understood from living in the ancient Near East. That is, trying to get over the point of victory. Ultimately, that the, the righteous ones will be vindicated in the end. It will be those on the side of King Jesus, of the ultimate judge, who will be victorious in the end and their feet would be red with blood, that's where that expression is coming from. Again, it's not this sort of gleeful caricature that we see, it's powerful imagery that's contextualized understanding warfare in the ancient Near East. And when you understand it like that, it just doesn't really present a problem, it's a very good way of expressing a very serious and strong point. There will be justice for those who thought that there were no consequences to their evil actions. It's a principle we grasp, like I say, law courts around the world, we have police systems, all these different things that, that in, micro, in a microscopic way imitate this principle. If you want to look at this more closely, I would say to you, read the book of Revelation, and you'll see ultimately a battle like this played out in the future. And then it says, let's look at the final verse, men will say, surely there is a reward for the righteous, surely there is a God who judges the earth. The reward there is a reward for the victorious army. And there is undeniably a judge in this world. Now, you remember that verse in Genesis where he says, shall not the judge of the earth do right? The character of God is what makes him the one who can judge. The omniscience of God, the man who sees into people's hearts and souls, the one who has done everything he can do, basically, to bring people to repentance. But the fact of the matter is, this is why people often don't like these sorts of psalms, is that there is a day coming when God is going to judge. There is a day coming when God is going to, when enough is enough, when his eschaton, when the eschaton comes to fruition. And we actually know from the New Testament that it will be King Jesus who is the one doing this judgment. You remember that verse in Acts 17? It says that therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now declaring to men that all people everywhere should repent. And that is the stage of history that we are in now still. God is still declaring to all men everywhere, repent. And that is one of the main missions of the church on this earth to carry that message to every tribe, tongue, and nation. That invitation is open for all because God does not want anyone to be on that opposing army. He did not make hell for people. He made it for Satan and his angels. And then it says in verse 31 of Acts 17, he wants people to repent because he has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he has appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. You see, so this concept of judgment and the end times is linked with the truth of the resurrection, which is the capstone, the foundation stone of Christian belief in the New Testament, part of the gospel, that he has defeated death, that he was rose again, that by rising again, it proved to the world that he is the son of God and he is the one who has the right to judge and he is the one who will in fact be coming back to do that judgment. But until that day, repent, repent, repent is his message. The only question remains for us today is what side will will we be on in that day of battle? And this is why the psalm is so serious because it presents a very serious option to us. Ultimately, there will be only one victorious side and it will not be a case if you live to fight another day. It will be the end. What do the scriptures say? They say, repent. This is the message of the gospel. Paul begs people. He goes around reasoning with people, begging them to be reconciled to God, to be reconciled to the king so that you don't have to see him as judge because you have to remember what this judge has done. You see, the judge already shed his own blood So that yours would not have to be in that sense, in that spiritual sense that I'm talking about. He shed his own blood so that by repenting and accepting what he has done, you will never have to come under the judgment of God. For there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. This is the glorious truth of the gospel. No one gets away with anything but in his mercy. This is why David prayed at the beginning, be gracious, be merciful to me, be merciful to me. We fling ourselves on the mercy of God and he has made that full provision. Not David, but the greater David, the son of God, the Messiah. And he is the one who will forgive us. He is the one who will judge. But if we rest, if we take refuge in him through his blood, we will never see that judgment. This is the gloriousness of the gospel that we have. And this is the message of Psalm 58. It can be quite uncomfortable, which is one reason why I think it's avoided. But in these times, I believe it is still a very necessary message. You've been listening to Theology and Apologetics. This podcast is supported by your generous donations. To help us continue to bring you great content, please visit our Patreon site at patreon.com slash theologyandapologetics. If you've been blessed by this podcast, please leave us a review and remember to connect with us on social media. For more resources, please go to theologyandapologetics.com. Thanks for listening.